Well, good morning, everybody. Whether you're here in the room or joining us online, honored to have you along for the ride. And just a couple of special shout outs today. Uh, the team from Keystone that just finished up serving uh, in the Dominican Republic is stranded in the Atlanta airport. And I have been told that they have gathered a crowd and are throwing the live stream up on the big screen. No, they're not. But they might, if they're watching, hello. And also special uh, greetings to the guys in Uganda that are tuning in. We've got that new site in Uganda. Apparently they wanted to check us out. So hopefully I don't disappoint you. All right, there we go. But anyway, today we get to continue a series called In the End that, as I've mentioned, has been a long time coming. I mean, like for decades now, I've had the incredible opportunity of serving as a pastor. And, and during that time, I've had, ha I've had a lot of opportunities to have a lot of conversations with people whose time on this earth was coming to an end. And, and during these conversations, I've noticed something. Many of the questions that we tend to ask when we're first exploring faith, questions about life and pain and God and religion and, and even what happens when we die, the, the questions sort of resurface um, when we face either the end of our life or the end of the life of someone that we love. And, and when these questions resurface, well, they carry an urgency that they simply didn't have when it felt like life would just go on forever. Said a bit differently, there are questions that really matter in the end. And in this series, what we're doing is exploring five of them one at a time as a way to sort of prepare us all for the day that these become the most important questions of all. And uh, with our time together this week, what I want to do is to consider a question that flows out of our discussion last week. Uh, because if you were with us last week, you recall that we talked about who gets to go to heaven when they die. And if you missed that, I totally encourage you to catch up on our podcast on the website. Uh, so last week, who goes to heaven when they die? This week, I want to answer the question, well, what do the authors of the Bible say about heaven? Like, what's it going to be like when we reach the other side? And, and my guess is, as I was preparing, I, I kept thinking, man, that's going to surprise a lot of you, especially if you grew up in church like I did, right? Like I, I was raised in a large non-denominational church right here in West Michigan during the 1980s. Who's with me? Yes, the Gipper was in the White House. And if you don't know who the Gipper was, I just feel old. So never mind. Yeah. Um, anyway, but I grew up in this big church in the 1980s and central to my understanding of the Christian faith was what would happen to me after this life because of my faith in Jesus. Um, and in fact, as I was preparing uh, for my talk this week, I actually found a picture on the internet that sort of captured my childhood understanding of where people went when they died. Check this out. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> and kind of creepy and a little weird. But anyway, yeah, um, obviously central to this image is this massive cross that bridges a canyon from which smoke and fire pour. And, and on the other side of the cross bridge thing is, um, well, it's kind of a long ramp that ascends into blinding light. One might even call it a stairway to, oh, I was waiting all week for that one. I was, anyway. Uh, the message, though, of this picture is, is clear, right? It, it's like because of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross, people are able to get 
to heaven. And I believe that to be true, but, but also notice that this picture imagines heaven as sort of being somewhere else. Like when a follower of Jesus dies, they leave here and end up there sort of by way of the cross. And, and whenever they get there, wherever there is, well, then I sort of put together going up, you know, you'd encounter things when you got there, like harps and clouds and organs and white robes and streets made of gold, which always bugged me as a kid because I was that analytical kid in Sunday school that annoyed my teachers, raised my hand. Gold is a terrible substance to build a street out of. Would you agree? Because it's soft. Like all the cars would sink if there are cars. We don't know that. But anyway, here's the thing. Because things like harps and clouds and organs and white robes and streets of gold upon reflection can be a little bit uninspiring, people have long asked really great questions about heaven. And, and you've probably asked these yourself. Questions like, you know, what will it be like? What, like, what do we do all day? And, and will we recognize people? Or we just sort of float around as disembodied spirits? And then my all-time personal favorite question, definitely asked this one a few times myself, will heaven be like a church service that goes on forever? And if so, can we talk a little bit about how bad the other option is, right? Because this sounds not great. Yeah, I mean, and I'm a pastor, and I, you know, you know that, yeah. Anyway, um, you know, that's not funny, but it is a little funny. Anyway, um, it may surprise you to learn that the harp, cloud, organ, white robe, streets of gold version of heaven, well, it isn't exactly what you find when the Bible talks about where people spend eternity, which of course raises a great question, like where did that vision come from? And I did a little digging, and I think historically speaking, we can thank a Greek philosopher named Plato for it. Uh, this is a you know, picture of, or a statue of, of Plato. He lived a few hundred years before the time of Jesus, and he was arguably the most influential Western philosopher of all time. But, but see, unfortunately, in his writings, well, Plato chose to divide everything into two separate worlds. He called them the upper world and the lower world. And he taught that in the upper world, that was like a spirit realm that contained something he called the forms. And the forms were basically the eternal, unchanging ideals for all that exist. We experience a world where there are cats, and in the upper world there is the form cat from which all other cats are merely copies, which is a terrifying example, and I don't even like cats, but I'm moving on now, right? Yeah, you get my point. Plato also taught that human beings were essentially souls who used to live in the upper world, but who are now trapped in the lower world until we die, at which point we will ascend back to the upper world where our souls will live on forever. That's Plato. Um, and if a little bit of that sounds familiar to you, it's because aspects of Plato's thinking about both this life and the afterlife were imported into the Christian church in the 4th century by an influential man named Augustine of Hippo. And uh, he didn't believe that the physical world was completely evil, but he did teach that the physical world was inferior to the spiritual one. And so he's led generations of Christians to believe that heaven contains sort of true or ultimate reality and that this earthly life was basically a waiting room for heaven and didn't count for much more than that. So what I want to do with the rest of our time today 
is I want to introduce you to what I believe a far better, more helpful, and more hopeful way to think about heaven and eternity. And uh, to get us moving in that direction, what I want to do is listen in on a conversation that Jesus had uh, one day that was recorded for us in the New Testament book of Matthew, a man named Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. So he t Matthew tells us around 2,000 years ago, Jesus had a conversation and he set it up for us this way. He wrote, now, a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And now when I first started reading the Bible seriously on my own, probably somewhere freshman, sophomore year of college, I, I would read this and I assumed that this man was asking Jesus how he could get into heaven when he died. But see, if that's what he was asking, then this would have been the perfect time for Jesus to give a straightforward answer. He could tell this guy something like, well, you can't do anything to get into heaven. That's not how it works, right? Uh, getting into heaven has nothing to do with what you do and everything to do with what I'm going to do for you and you placing your faith in what I'm going to do for you. And so this is a great opportunity for Jesus to clear it up if that's what the guy was asking. But, well, that's not what Jesus said in response to the guy's question. Because as it turns out, when this guy asked Jesus about eternal life, he wasn't asking how to get to heaven when he died, he was asking a very different question. So here's how Jesus responded. Then I'll tell you what the guy was really asking. He looks at the guy and he says, why do you ask me about what is good? Uh, there is only one who's good, speaking of God. He says, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. And so notice something here. Jesus describes the man's desire at not as getting into heaven when he died, but rather something he called entering life. And then Jesus tells him that he can enter life by keeping the commandments, which sounds good, but, but also begs a really important question that the man actually verbalizes. He looks back at Jesus and he says, which ones? And that's a really fair question because um, if you were to ask, you know, how many commands are in the Old Testament, I would tell you 613 of them. And so the guy says, which ones? And Jesus uh, looks back at him and he says, well, he quotes five of the six of the most famous commands in the Old Testament that deal with people's relationships to one another. And all five that Jesus quotes were originally given to the people of ancient Israel at Mount Sinai as a part of the original Ten Commandments. And just an interesting footnote, uh, many first century Jews and many Jews today see the Ten Commandments as sort of a summary of all the others. And so Jesus' selection of those five actually makes sense. Anyway, here's what Jesus said to the man when he asked what he needed to do in order to enter life. He says, okay, uh, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, so don't lie, honor your father and mother, and he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the man responded. He says, well, um, all those I have kept. The young man said, what do I still lack? And before we go any farther, just notice something. There's a reason this guy is asking this question. He has a deep sense that he's missing something. And so he goes to Jesus and he says, you know, I'm trying to live a good life. I'm trying to follow the rules. I'm trying to do everything that, that God has asked me to do. But I still have this nagging sense that I need to do something else. So all these I've kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, he says, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in, and here's our word, heaven. Then he says, come follow me. Come be my disciple. 
And so if you think about it, this is a really fascinating exchange between Jesus and this guy. It contains words like eternal life and heaven, but, but Jesus seems to use them in a different way than we tend to use them. Like as we said, Jesus' response to the man's question doesn't really answer the question of how someone gets to heaven when they die. And so not surprisingly, that's, there's a really good reason for that, namely that when the first century Jewish man asked Jesus about eternal life, he wasn't talking about where he would go when he died. He was talking about his life right here and right now. And, and here's why we know that, uh, historically speaking. For, for first century Jews, the concept of heaven was deeply connected to what they called this age, as in the, the life in which we now live, and the age to come, a future age where there are some different rules that are in play. And as it turns out, viewing the present life and the life after death in terms of two ages, it wasn't unique to first century Jewish people. In fact, Jewish prophets had written of this age to come for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years leading up to the time of Jesus. And these prophets had long affirmed that God was at work in the world and that human history was actually heading somewhere incredible. They believed and taught that God had not abandoned this world, broken as it is. He hadn't abandoned it, and moreover, there was a new age that he was soon going to bring about. And this new age was going to be far different and far better than the present age. So check out a few of the ways uh, that these prophets described it. So the first I want to show you is 800 years before the time of Jesus, there was a Jewish prophet named Isaiah, and he wrote that in the age to come, and check this out, he said, there will be peace on earth. N not just peace within nations and between nations, or within people and between people, but there will be peace on earth everywhere, all at once, a lasting, abiding peace. Then he says this, people will neither harm nor destroy. And it's hard for us to even imagine a world where people would not harm one another or destroy one another. He goes on, he says, there will be a feast of rich foods for all people. There'll be abundance. No one will be in need. And then this, God will wipe away the tears from all faces. There will be no more need to mourn or to cry because peace will have been restored. So that's 800 years before the time of Jesus. Then 600 years before the time of Jesus, there was another Jewish prophet. His name was Ezekiel. And he said that in the age to come, this is my summary, but people would be given grain and fruit and crops and then most significantly, new hearts. He says, you know, the age to come is going to be an age of, again, abundance with fruit and crops and, and then God is going to be doing something new inside each individual. That's Ezekiel. And then finally, one more example. There's a prophet named Amos. And around 600 years before the time of Jesus, he wrote this. This is a direct quote. He says, people will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I mean, it, it's, it's fascinating to consider how earthy the Jewish prophet's vision of the age to come was. Uh, you know, and again, the Old Testament is full of this, but they, they described a new age filled with things like wine and crops and grain and feasts and cities 
and homes. In, in other words, it wasn't like this disembodied spirits floating around for eternity, but they described, well, this world, but not this world. This world rescued and transformed and renewed. I, I love how um, a local seminary professor named Mike Whitmer summarized this understanding in his book, In Christ Alone. And uh, Mike's greatest uh, day in his life is when he got to have lunch with me like 10 years ago. So he's been kind of peaked. I'm just kidding. I'm messing with you. Okay, here's what Mike wrote. He said, um, Jewish prophets did not talk about a future life somewhere else. They anticipated a coming day when the world would be renewed or restored, renewed, and redeemed. And again, there would be peace on earth. I guess you could even say that much of the Jewish vision of the age to come, whatever comes after this life, it wasn't new. From their perspective, it was a recapturing of what God had intended for people like in the beginning. And if you spend any time in church, you're familiar with that story, right? The authors of the Bible record that God, after creating the first people, he places the first people in a garden called Eden, a physical reality. And then he invited them to participate in taking creation forward. They had work to do, and it was good work to do. And that was how things were supposed to be until everything went off the rails. But see, this is so exciting. According to Jewish prophets, that's how it will be one day again for people. They will live at peace and they will be in partnership with God to move creation forward. And, and, and that makes sense if you think about it, right? You, you think about those descriptions, especially the third one from Amos. And Amos is like, there's going to be wine and there's going to be cities. It's like, okay, well, if that's true, if there's got to be wine, then someone has to crush the grapes. And for a city to be real built, somebody has to construct the homes. And, and that's why for Jewish prophets, human participation was and is critical to the story because from the dawn of humanity, God has been looking for human partners to care for the earth and for one another in loving ways. And so they set their hope on the God who never gives up on creation. And I'm telling you, every time I come around these thoughts, I'm like, isn't that incredible. Isn't that hopeful that it isn't just disembodied floating around on clouds for eternity, but it's, but it's participation with God. But, but, but now, obviously, before we go any farther, um, I think we have to note that central to this prophet's vision for the coming age was a list of things that wouldn't cross over. Right? There, there's a whole bunch of good stuff from this life that does get pulled over, but then there's a bunch of stuff that doesn't, too. Things like war, and greed, and injustice, and violence, and pride, and division, and exploitation. They said there's, there's a bunch of stuff that, that's a part of this age that's not, not a part of the age to come. And, and so if you think about that, um, the description of life in the age to come is thrilling, but it's also a little bit unnerving, because if I'm honest, there's some of this stuff in me, and there's some of this stuff in all of us, and for the earth to be free of destructive, damaging things, like decisions have to be made and, and judgments have to be rendered. And, and so the prophets, along with speaking of all this wonderful, wonderful, what is it going to be like in the age to come? It's going to be full, rich, everything God intended. They also wrote of a day when God would make the judgments that need 
to be made. And they called it, well, they called it the day of the Lord. And you see this in the Old Testament writings and you see this in the New Testament writings. It's the day when God finally says enough to all the things that, that he never intended to be a part of the human experience. Things that make us cry and things that make him cry. A day when everything would fully and finally be made right and peace, as God intended, would reign on earth as it does right now in heaven. All that to say, when first century Jewish people thought about heaven, they didn't imagine a future life for themselves somewhere else. They anticipated a day when, when the world, like this world, but not quite like we've ever recognized this world, but this world would be restored and redeemed and purified and renewed. And, and so when this guy comes up to Jesus and asks him how he can get eternal life, Jesus answers by instructing him as to how to become the type of person right here and right now in this life that reflects what life will be like in the age to come. There's stuff inside of all of us that it's like Jesus wants us to root out so that we're more ready for the world that is to come. And so the standard answer for first century Jewish people as to how to do that, how do you become that kind of person? They were to follow the commandments. They would say to one another, if they were trying to encourage one another, like, listen, God has shown us how to live, so just live like that. And, and it makes sense because, you know, the more you become a person of peace and justice and generosity in this life, the more ready you're going to be for the age to come. Okay, so now, um, as a bit of a P.S., Remember that I said that Jesus mentioned five of the six commands from the Ten Commandments that deal with relationships between people in his response to the man's question about how to get eternal life. We brought a slide with the, with the uh, Ten Commandments. Well, as it turns out, Jesus leaves out number 10. So he talks about honor parents and no murder, no adultery, no theft, no lying. But he doesn't mention covening. And I think that omission was not accidental. And here's why I say that. Uh, one of the things when you're reading the accounts of Jesus' life you see over and over again is that he knew what was going on in people's hearts. And so he looked at this man and he looked through this man and he knew that this man had spent his life in a pattern of endlessly wanting what others had. He was covetous. He was greedy. And that was keeping him from the life that God had designed for him to live. And so while it is possible that the man had kept all the commands that Jesus mentioned, Jesus didn't mention the command that forbid coveting. And so in love and seeing the potential in this man, Jesus prescribed a remedy to his affliction, something that he knew could break the back of a greedy spirit. He says, I want you to sell your stuff and give all the money to the poor, and then I want you to come follow me. And it's interesting, but uh, again, when you read those accounts of Jesus' life, Jesus doesn't tell everybody to sell all their stuff and give to the poor. Because apparently other people didn't have this as the primary issue that was keeping them from the life that God had for them. But see, that was the issue for this man. He was greedy, and greed has no place in the age to come. You know, Jesus looked in his eyes and he recognized that this man had never stepped into his sacred calling to use his wealth to move creation forward, to bring a little bit of the peace of heaven here and now. And so Jesus looks at him and he says, hey, if you can do that, 
If you can do that, then you can have treasure in heaven. But see, according to Matthew, the guy can't do it, and so he walks away. And Jesus loves him enough to let him walk away. But he invites, and he encourages, and he inspires. Okay, so that brings us back to the question of the day. We've kind of skirted around the edges of it, but we're going to take it head on as we kind of come in for a landing. What did the authors of the Bible mean when they said heaven or they wrote about heaven? And I would argue that when you read the accounts of Jesus' life carefully, you'll see that, that like the Jewish prophets that had come before him, Jesus consistently affirmed heaven as a real space within creation. And he identified it as a place where God's will and only God's will was done. And this, of course, stands in stark contrast to our present reality, which is a world in which lots of different wills are done. Sometimes God's will is done, and sometimes my will is done, and sometimes your will is done, and sometimes lots of other people's wills are done. And as a result of all this chaos created by multiple wills functioning simultaneously, you know, in the present age, heaven and earth are not one. But Jesus and the Jewish prophets repeatedly pointed forward to a day when heaven and earth would be one. When God's will fully and finally was done on earth as it is in heaven. And there's actually a vision of that day recorded in the last book in the New Testament of the Bible. And we actually read it a couple of weeks ago. I want to read it again today because it's so inspiring. But, but here's what one of Jesus' first disciples, a man by the name of John, wrote around 2,000 years ago. He said uh, he had a vision, and in this vision, he said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And sea in the ancient Jewish mind was chaos. It was kingdom of darkness. John's like, there's no more chaos. And he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, behold, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And then check this out. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Just like Isaiah pointed us forward to that day, John says, I saw a vision and on that day, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things, that's this age, has passed away. And then this, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And, and that, my friends, that is the story of the Bible. That's what all those authors are telling us. The story of the eventual restoration of all things on the day heaven and earth are one. It's like Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, but he also died on the cross as the down payment for the restoration of all things. It's the story Jesus told. It's the story Jesus lived. And I would argue it's the story that can give us an incredible amount of hope, especially during those in the end sort of moments of our lives when, we, when we like, we're awakened in bed at night because we know we're approaching the end and there's all this fear and all this anxiety and all these questions. And it's like in those moments, I think Jesus would say to us, I've got you, I've got you, and you're heading 
to a place where everything is right. You're going to see what God intended for you in the beginning, and it's going to be good. It's going to be great. You don't have to be afraid. It's hard to say goodbye, but maybe it's like we need to start saying see you later, because on the other side, the reunion is going to be spectacular. I want to show you one more quote from Mike Whitmer's book, uh, In Christ Alone. He summarizes this, this concept about how in the understanding of the Bible's writers, everything comes together in the end. He writes, the Bible never speaks of heaven as the end game, but repeatedly says that Jesus will return to restore this creation and live with his people on a new earth. Then he says, unlike the leaders of many other religions who declare that the good stuff happens high up and far away, Jesus says that the kingdom of God comes to earth. Or, he said more precisely, that it has come, as in when Jesus came, it came, is coming as the light of the gospel extends into our world and will finally come the day heaven and earth are one. Um, I guess, I mean, this, this stuff gets me so excited, you can probably tell, but um, as I was reflecting this week, and I was like, you know what, just as kind of a PPS to the whole, the whole talk today, I just got to point something out. I think it's fair to say that 80s pop princess, Belinda Carlisle, remember her? Mm -hmm. I think she was far more biblically informed than any of us imagined when she sang the song, Heaven is a Place on Earth, am I right? And so the next time you find yourself in the dentist's office, or in an elevator, and the song comes on. I just want you to reflect on the amazing promise that we have. And we'll pick it up there next week. Uh, but for now, I'd love to invite you to stand. And I'll close our time together in prayer. And uh, once again this week, if you've come in this place, or maybe you're here for the first time, and uh, you just want to meet somebody and have them shake your hand and hear a little bit of your story and maybe offer a prayer for you, we'd love to meet you under the left screen uh, right after the service. But uh, for the rest of us, let me close our time together. Heavenly Father, you are so, so, so good. And your plan is so beautiful and so much more than we deserve. But this morning, we reflect once again on the love that you have for your creation, your rebellious kids who turned from you and who ran from you and who still turn from you and still run from you. And yet you extend grace and you invite us back home and you invite us to be a part of the new thing that you're doing right here and right now that will extend into eternity. I pray for friends that um, as they walked in this space, the thing that's front and center for them is they, they have a strong sense they're nearing the end of their journey in this life, in this age. And I pray that in them hope would rise, that you have a plan for them on the other side, and it's a plan that is better than they can possibly imagine. So thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him among us as light and darkness to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And thank you for the hope that one day your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long for that day. We look forward to that day. 
Please use us to spread the news of the good work you're doing in our world. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Everyone said, amen. It's been great to be with you, friends. We'll see you next week. Grace and peace.